Welcome back to The Uncommon Room, and thanks for listening. We are so excited to do a follow-up episode on purity culture, and if you've not listened to our first episode, definitely go back and give it a listen. It was such a great conversation. We had so much feedback from a lot of our listeners about different experiences that they've had because of purity culture after we released that first episode. I started to get the feeling that maybe we needed a follow-up episode just to talk about, okay, where do we go from here? How do we move forward now? Thankfully, our guest on today's episode reached out to me on Instagram and provided that opportunity. I would like to say that I definitely mispronounced her name while introducing her on the actual episode, so I'm going to do it correctly now. We have Dr. Camden Morganti joining us on this episode. Also, just as a side note, we did record this episode from our homes, so there was some lag and overlap that occurred on the recording. I'm so sorry about that. But if you hear us talking over each other at certain points, we were not actually doing that in real life. That's just how the recording came out. Dr. Morganti understands the trauma that purity culture can bring and has studied how we can move forward from it after the fact. Just as a disclaimer, as with every episode, this is just one perspective and one opinion. You may have different ethics or beliefs than Dr. Camden does, but there's definitely something that you will get out of this episode if you've been affected by purity culture in any capacity. We walk through how to combat shame and the thoughts that creep in because of purity culture's narratives and myths, and how to create a new way to view our purity as a whole. Please never hesitate to reach out on Instagram and let us know your thoughts on the episode. We love hearing from you. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Camden Morganti. Welcome to the Uncommon Room. Today I have Dr. Camden Morganti um, joining me on our podcast. We're doing a purity culture follow-up episode and I'm really excited about it and really thankful that um, Dr. Camden is able to join us. Um, I'll just give her a little introduction to start us off. Dr. Camden Morganti is a licensed clinical psychologist and college professor who writes about psychology, Christianity, and gender equality on her website and on social media. She is a regular contributor to Christians for Biblical Equality's blog called Mutual mutuality. She is currently working on a book proposal on purity culture. Camden lives with her husband and daughter in Knoxville, Tennessee. You can take her free quiz on her website called Which Purity Culture Myth Affects You, which we're going to be talking about in a minute. And of course, you can follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all the things. So again, I'm super honored and thankful that we get to chat today because I think um, there's going to be a lot to talk about and follow up about. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jesse, for having me. I'm excited to talk with you more about purity culture. Yes, I've had a lot of feedback from the purity culture episode that we put out with so many girls, um, particularly just responding with stories that they've had and experiences they've had mm -hmm. um, with purity culture. And all of them, you know, were just, I mean, jaw dropping, but also at the same time, not surprising because of um, the culture that has been created. And um, I did kind of feel like it was something that we needed to follow up because, mm -hmm. you know, in our first episode, it was more about like the narratives that we were taught and, you know, the language you use in your blog is the myths. And um, we were noticing that those aligned mm -hmm. very closely. Um, right. And whenever we saw, you know, all of those, I, th I feel like the DMs and things that I was getting, it was a lot of girls being like, yes, agree, agree. But 
all of us kind of were left hanging, I think. And Mm -hmm. even myself, I was like, that was great that we can all relate on this, but like, what do we do now? And, um, now that we have recognized that we all have all of this guilt and shame build up, Mm -hmm. um, how do we deal with that? And so, um, maybe the first thing you can do for us in case somebody hasn't listened to our first episode or hasn't read your blog, could you give us just a brief overview of the myths that you discussed in that article? And then we'll kind of go from there. Yes. Um, yeah. So in your um, purity culture episode, you called them narratives and I call them in my um, article myths, but they were very much aligned. So we noticed a lot mm-hmm. of similarities. Um, so the article I'm referring to is an article, it's on my um, website, but it was published by Christians for Biblical Equality and won a writing contest in 2018 for them. And the article is mm-hmm. called Five Myths of Purity Culture. Um, so the five myths that I identified, um, number one, the spiritual barometer myth that says that we are better Christians if we are virgins and that our virginity or purity is a way to measure how spiritually mature we are. So that's number one. Number two is the fairy tale myth that if we remain pure, remain virgins, that God will give us a fairy tale marriage, bring us our spouse, and we'll live happily ever after as a reward for purity. Um, number three is the flipped switch myth that as soon as you get married, a switch flips and sex goes from off limits to um, to great and on limits. And suddenly, automatically, your sex life will be amazing. And number four is the damaged goods myth that if you have premarital sex, um, you are damaged goods, you're impure, you're no longer worthy, um, you're broken. Um, you also hear a variation of this myth that the, the best gift you can give your spouse on your wedding day is your virginity. Um, and in particular, this one can also affect victims of um, sexual abuse and trauma, um, feeling like they're damaged goods for something that was done to them, not something that they chose or that was their fault at all. And then the fifth myth is what I call the gatekeepers myth, that women are considered the gatekeepers of purity, um, that sex is primarily for men and men can't help themselves with their you know, lust and their sexual urges and desires. So women are, are the ones who have to put the brakes on um, and have boundaries prior to marriage around sex. And then after marriage, they constantly have to um, be giving sexually to their husband or their husbands might um, stray. Um, So a lot of undue responsibility on the women and not any responsibility put on men. So so that's how I've organized and kind of the five myths and how they coincided with the narratives that you talked about um, in your episode too. We, We definitely both aligned there, but also I feel like you just hit the nail on the head with all of them. You covered them. And um, it's just, I mean, it's just interesting too, I think in general to think about purity culture as a whole and see how, you know, like me who I'm, you know, never heard of you, never met you at all. And I just was talking about my personal experience Mm -hmm. and I was writing on my own, like, okay, let me think of the things that I was taught by this purity culture. And then you, a licensed clinical psychologist, you know, Mm -hmm. has something that aligns very closely. And I feel like you know, that, that means we can't be making this stuff up. And this is, you know, very real and something that's been a part of my life and your life too, Mm -hmm. which is also crazy because I feel like, you know, we're, I'm 20, about to be 26, you're 30, 34. Mm -hmm. 34. And so we both experienced a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's definitely something to talk about and something that we're all dealing with still um, years later. So yeah, like you said, the um, fact that so many of us experience the same thing shows, like you said, we're not making this up. This was this was the narrative that those of us who grew up, especially in evangelical Christian culture, received. Mm-hmm. Um, those of us who 
you know, went to purity rallies or purity balls or had a true live weights ring or wet read I kiss dating goodbye or other books like that. Um, and that was really most prevalent in like the late nineties and early two thousands. And so that's when, um, a lot of women, you know, and Christians who are in their 20s and 30s now, that's when we were growing up and kind of hearing all this stuff. So, um, but I do find like with my college students who are about, you know, 15 years or so younger than me, there's, they're still, these myths still resonate with them too. So it's not like Mm. purity culture has gone away um, since the 90s or 2000s. They're still hearing these things. They're still believing these things. So I think it's still affecting um, young women coming behind us too. Right. I was going to say that there there have been people who've reached out to me who've said, you know, I've never really heard of True Love Waits or I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but mm-hmm. my pastor said this and I was really confused. Or, you know, I even had one girl who was like, at my wedding, a man that I respected in the church came up to me and said, like, you always need to say yes to your husband. Oh my goodness. And <laughs> I know, I know. And so I feel like, you know, like you're saying, even if you didn't necessarily experience the exact same things we did with the actual books and the whole, you know, the start of the movement, there are definitely things that still remain in the church um, mm-hmm. and just in p- girls' experiences. Right. So um, with, with that, we all are experiencing the same shame and the same guilt buildup over time. Um, and, I think that's kind of what we're going to focus on today is like, how do we start to like identify that and then move past it and then create a a better way to think about purity and a better way to think about sexuality in general as a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so the first kind of question that comes to mind, because when you think about purity culture and when we talk about the myths and the narratives, we hear a lot of legalism. So we hear a lot of language that is just black and white and they have very clear cause and effects. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the words that we might hear thrown around are holy, unholy, pure, impure, damaged, clean, dirty. Um, And those, the the language in itself, I feel like is a huge part of purity culture, honestly, might be the reason why we have been experiencing so much shame is because like maybe the actual core of what is being communicated isn't wrong, but the way it's being communicated is really hurtful and damaging. Mm-hmm. So how do we begin to move past that and to even start to think about it in a different way when that's the only way we've been? Taught? Yeah. Well, I think the first step is to recognize when you're hearing legalistic language. And like you said, legalism and legalistic language will be very black and white with clear cause and effect. There's no room for gray. There's no room for um, nuances with with legalism. So um, even things like what I said earlier about the greatest gift you can give your spouse is your virginity. Um, That's very black and white using a term like greatest. It's a gift. It's a gift you can give, but I would I would not agree that it's the greatest gift um, or that mm-hmm. somehow you're damaged or you're missing out on something or you're presenting and, you know, not a whole self if you aren't a virgin on your wedding day. Um, so first recognize um, legalistic language, because like you said, if we've been hearing this from our church or from our families, um, we just take it for granted. We don't even question it. So start to recognize it and question it and embrace more nuanced understandings of purity, um, that there is a lot of gray and it can be easier to accept this black and white thinking. Um, and that's really what purity culture fed us in order to try to convince us not to have sex. Um, they used a lot of mm-hmm. black and white and legalistic kind of term- terminology. 
Um, but as we get older, we need to embrace more um, nuanced um, understandings, use more critical thinking, and more sophisticated um, reasons for our morals, for why we um, believe in purity or why we want to um, hold to a biblical sexual ethic. Um, so the older we get, the more robust we want our theology to be, the more and, and the more nuanced, like I said. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And I think that a lot of times people might hear, you know, people might hear you say a gray area or um, nuanced understandings, and they might see that as well. What I believe about sex before marriage is very black Mm -hmm. and white, and the Bible is very clear. And we're not saying you can't Mm -hmm. believe that. We're saying that the way that you communicate with other people about it and the way that you understand purity as a whole and the way that you view other people and yourself isn't necessarily a black or white, a black or white understanding, or maybe it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be. I don't know. I I feel like that's where a lot of the, the tension comes in when I talk to people about this kind of thing who, you know, are still very ingrained in their ways. And they're like, you know, well, I, I have a very clear understanding of what I believe. And so I'm not going to sit in the gray Mm -hmm. area. And I just think that, you know, it is important to have more of an an open mindset when you are talking to other people because you don't know other people's experiences. And like, we have to be gentle with other people and compassionate with other people because like they might've experienced something that we don't understand. So I don't know. What would you say to those people who kind of combat that and say like, yeah, uh, this is mm-hmm. what I think. Yeah. I deal with that um, myself because I teach uh, college um, psychology classes and right now I'm teaching um, psychology of human sexuality. And, um, mm-hmm. and sometimes I get the idea that students feel very um, firm in their beliefs and very clear on the Bible says this is right or wrong. So why do we have to consider or think about other points of view? And, Really, I'm not. Um, I'm not asking you to change what you think. I'm asking you to change how you think. You know, I want mm-hmm. people to think um, deeper and think broader about about these topics, like considering other viewpoints. You don't have to change what you believe. You don't have to change the, your belief in purity. In fact, I make it very clear in my writing that I still um, believe in a biblical sexual ethic of premarital sexual abstinence and then sexual faithfulness in marriage. So I still hold to that belief, um, which is a more traditional belief, but how I think about purity has changed. I no longer think about it as, well, if I stay pure, then God's going to give me a fairy tale marriage because that didn't happen for me. Um, so I think that's one thing I would suggest for people is to, um, yeah, that you can still have your belief, but think about it differently. Um, and that means like, you know, I make the choice to stay pure, not for the reward, which is really not biblical. You know, that purity culture promised a fairy tale marriage and a fantastic sex life. That's not in the Bible. Um, that's not a biblical promise. Right. Um, but stay pure because you want to obey God and you want to be faithful to your beliefs and, and your values um, and morals, not for some reward. Um So, yeah, so that was the biggest way that purity culture affected me was that um, I thought that there was going to be a clear cause and effect. I thought I was going to get the reward that purity culture promised me. 
And then I ended up not getting married till I was almost 30 and being single for almost all of my 20s and just really struggling with singleness because I had a lot of the shame of, you know, what's wrong with me? Like I've done everything quote unquote right. And like, where is my husband? Why hasn't God given me this? And um, so I struggled with a lot of like doubts and anger towards God and jealousy towards all my friends who were getting married. And um, so that was the biggest way purity culture affected me. And the and I use that as just an example of how thinking about purity differently has helped me um, with that. Yes, I do agree that like the more I think the more conversation that you're able to have in that mm-hmm. way with other people, um, the the deeper the relationship will go. Like I'm thinking about, you know, all of my friends who have experienced similar things that you have and um, but also have just felt this like heavy weight from purity culture. And if we're all kind of thinking about it in this more nuanced way and like in this, in this way of understanding that it's not black and white, it's not easy. It's not, you know, do this and then this will happen. I feel like that creates space for so much more conversation and for, for the guilt and the shame to kind Mm -hmm. of fall away because, um, you know, you are relating on that in that way. And you are saying like this, what, what we've been taught is not necessarily, you know, the truth. And I've experienced it mm-hmm. firsthand. So I do feel like, you know, not only is it, is it helpful to, to start breaking down the legalism and having the more nuanced understanding, it also creates space for better relationships. I think it allows so. for greater empathy and compassion and connection with others, which um, as we talk about shame, empathy is and connection are the antidotes to shame. So um, as I sit with a friend, and, and I have friends who are older than me who are who are still single, and as I sit with those friends and hear their pain and hear their questions and hear their um, their doubts about like why should I even stay pure because God hasn't brought me a husband and I'm you know still in, in my 30s and still single. It would be so much easier um, for me to say, well, don't worry, God's going to bring you the one. Um, Well, you just keep hanging in there and, you know, God's going to reward your faithfulness. You know, it would be easier to say those kinds of things. It's harder to sit in the gray and to say, you know, this is so hard. This is, you're allowed to grieve this. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, um, it's painful that other people around you have um, have gotten married and you've tried to remain faithful to God and serving Him and obeying Him and and this hasn't happened for you and this is something you greatly desire. Um, but when I do that, it allows, like I said, for empathy and connection and it allows that shame to fall away some. Um, that more and more it chips away at the shame when my friend can feel like there's nothing wrong with me and God's not withholding good things from me to punish me or because because I'm you know, because I did something wrong or because there's something wrong with me. Um, This is just, this is just a painful um, reality for me. And God didn't promise easy and didn't promise um, a spouse when I wanted, um, when I wanted it. Um, So I can still obey and remain faithful to God, even, even though things haven't turned out the way I wanted them to. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. That's so true. And I do, I love, I feel like, you know, you and I both have Mm -hmm. mentioned, we love Brene Brown. And, um, one of the things that she talks about a lot is how empathy and compassion can combat shame. And so as we kind of move forward, talking about combating shame, I feel like a lot of our answers, uh, in response to like, how do we deal with this is just going to be compassion and empathy. Um, and so we kind of talked about how, you know, being single, 
one of the shameful thoughts that we feel is something is wrong with me because I'm still single, mm-hmm. even though I've been faithful or, but some of the other thoughts that kind of come through with the shame from purity culture is, you know, sex has been frustrating and disappointing since the start of my marriage, even though we waited and I feel mm-hmm. shame about that. I feel upset and angry because like, and this was personally for me, this was something mm-hmm. I talked about in the first episode um, that, you know, my husband and I like fought and just like we're struggling our entire mm-hmm. relationship to mm-hmm. not have sex. And it was the biggest argument. It was the biggest thing that we de- dealt with the whole time. And we felt so much shame and guilt after doing like after mm-hmm. literally after just kissing. And it was horrible. I mean, there were moments where I was just like, I don't even want to be in a relationship mm-hmm. because this is too much. And once we got married that like on our on our wedding day, we were so excited, but then Mm -hmm. it was not good. Mm -hmm. It was really rough and it was not um, an easy journey. Like the first Mm -hmm. four months of our marriage, we, we just really struggled and there was a bunch of resentment towards one another. There was a bunch of Mm -hmm. anger towards the church. There was a bunch of like, cause we, you know, we were like, well, if we would have done this before we got married, then this Mm -hmm. wouldn't be a problem now. Like Mm -hmm. we would have had it figured out by now, but we tried to be faithful because we thought that it was going to be great once we got married. So lots of thoughts, lots Mm -hmm. of shame that came from that. And we've, you know, we've been working through it. And I feel like the one thing that has helped me a lot personally has been like talking to other people about it and realizing that I'm not alone in that. And also just talking to my husband about it and making it a conversation rather than something that's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. re- resentment just there. And um, so what would you encourage other people to to combat with that? This is why I identified the flip switch myth, because this can be damaging to people, even if they were virgins when they get married and then they think the, the switch is going to flip and this gets, this is going to be amazing because this is my reward for waiting. Um, yeah. And what I say yeah. is that purity, there's no finish line for purity. Um, so your wedding day or your wedding night mm-hmm. is not the finish line of purity. Purity is a lifelong spiritual discipline that you can practice even in marriage. And now, of course, that doesn't mean abstaining from sex in marriage, but it means um, having sex in a way that honors God in marriage. So if there's manipulation and coercion and like power struggles and demands, well, that's not honoring of God and his design and purpose for sex either. So even within marriage, sex, I think, can be impure or can be not according to God's purpose and design for, for, for sex. So um, but as far as what you were saying, Jesse, yeah, I've worked with couples in therapy and then I've had, you know, friends um, who've gotten married and it's taken them months to even be able to consummate their marriage um, or to really enjoy. It's taken months or years to really enjoy their sex life without shame or without pain. Um yeah, so there is no guarantee or promise that it's going to be good once you're married. And there's really no guarantee or promise that if you had had sex before marriage that you wouldn't have had those struggles or, you know, that things would have been easier in marriage either. Um, sex is like one part of marriage that, that we have to work on. It doesn't come easily or naturally. It's really, a, you know, a skill that you cultivate throughout your marriage. And that's part of, I think, the beauty of it is that you're ideally married to the same person for your whole life and you get to explore that together just the two of you and work on it um for the rest of your life and just enjoy each other and enjoy the changes and seasons of marriage you know how um children change sex life and how aging changes it and health issues and then also you know just changes of the seasons of life so 
Um, so instead of saying that sex is going to be easy and amazing, I think we should really be emphasizing the um, the teamwork and the communication and the patience um, that sex requires, that it requires a lot of openness with your spouse mm-hmm. and a willingness to meet each other's needs and be giving um, and receive pleasure as well, especially for women, um, being able to focus on their own pleasure and communicate that with their their spouses. So, yeah, so we need to emphasize that sex can be hard work, but that it is a gift and a blessing that God has for us to enjoy in marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to, I'm glad you said that um, about how we're, we can change the the narrative because one of the things that came up in my head as you were talking is after dealing with, you know, combating my own shame, like how can we as a church, um, you know, before, you know, for the younger people who are getting married or dealing or not younger necessarily, but just dealing with this, um, how can we communicate, start communicating in a different way about it? And one of the things that I've been just really passionate about is being like willing to have a conversation about the fact that, you know, hey, maybe it's not going to be what you see like all around you or even maybe what your friends have experienced. Sex is different for every person and um, every body is different. And so everyone's going to have a different experience. But here are some things that could happen. And here are some things that you might experience. And I don't know, I, I don't know if you agree with that. But I feel like that might be a good way to start communicating it um, in in some some form of church environment, I guess it would be like a, in a small group with mm-hmm. people that you're close to and um, that kind of thing. But, you know, I feel like a lot of the, the negative stories that I heard were like, you know, this is what my pastor said. This is what my small group leader said. And maybe there's a way that those, those really, those people who are very impactful in our lives can change the way they're communicating sexuality to us. And maybe we'll talk more about this, you know, when uh-huh. we talk about creating our biblical ethic, but um, that's just something that well, came I to think, my mind. I think that's good because to normalize a problem is one of the best ways to reduce shame too. So when we can normalize the hard yes. work that sex requires in marriage, it's like communication. Um, you know, communication is something that takes work throughout your marriage. And there are some times where you communicate really well, and there's some times where it's a, it's a struggle. Um, and you learn skills. Maybe you go to counseling, yep. or maybe you read a book, maybe you work with um, a pastor or a mentor couple to learn better communication skills, and you practice that in your marriage. Um, so sex is very similar in that it's something that you work on. It's not something that you're going to have completely figured out on your wedding night. So just normalizing that um, sexual problems are very normal at some point in the lifetime of a marriage. That sexual pain can be um, a very common experience. And as you age and as health changes, there can be, you know, more problems. Or like I said, when you have kids, that changes things. So, yeah, so normalizing it helps with the shame. But we also don't want to go to the extreme of sometimes I think churches or small group leaders or pastors can make you almost fearful of sex. Um, like I heard a lot of sex is going to be so painful if you're a virgin, you're going to bleed a lot and you're going to, you know, it's going to be so painful your whole honeymoon. And so it can almost be like this fearful response, which also creates shame and makes it difficult to enjoy sex and have any pleasure in your, on your honeymoon or, you know, whenever you first start having sex. So we, we want to avoid the extremes of either like making it something people dread and just um, sound horrible and painful, but also we don't want to like glorify it and idolize it either. Yes. The other narrative, um, shame narrative that I feel like a lot of people 
deal with um, and that you discuss again in your article is the thought, um, I am damaged goods because I'm no longer a virgin. And this can be for people who, you know, weren't Christians and then they became Christians and decided that that was that abstinence was something they wanted to do or uh, abstinence before marriage. It could also be I know, you know, I personally know um, some friends who have been Christians and have had sex and then afterwards immediately feel this shame of like, I'm, I'm broken and I'm not going to have this to, for my husband. Um, and even friends who have broken up with the person they had sex with and got married to someone different, like that was Mm -hmm. extremely difficult for them. So what's one way that they can start combating shame? I mean, I know that again, a lot of it is conversation and just starting to recognize that, Mm -hmm. that, that language is a problem, but um, yeah. So as I've been um, working on my book proposal on purity culture, I've been researching and studying like, what is my definition of purity? Um, because I don't think that our purity is tied to our virginity. So I would say like, you're not automatically pure because you're a virgin and you're not automatically impure because you're not a virgin. Really, if if you, mm-hmm. my Christian beliefs or my beliefs are that we're all impure because we're all sinners, but we are made pure by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice and his death on the cross and us accepting that that gift of grace that he offered us. So our purity is granted to us by accepting um, God's grace, not from anything we've done. So that's where we have to stay away from a works-based yeah. religion. And again, getting into some of the myths about virginity makes me a better Christian. Like that's very works-based. That's something I've done um, makes me worthy or makes me whole. Um, faithful. Instead, it's about what Christ has done in us. So, yes, yes. I think, I think that thinking about your uh, purity in a different light, instead of it being, you know, you know, if you do this, Mm -hmm. you are pure. If you don't do this, you are not, you know, you are not pure. Um, That can be really helpful for breaking down that shame mindset. um, And just thinking, I mean, that can apply to anything, you know, it can apply to someone who's been a part of like infidelity and they, you know, continue to deal with the shame from that or whatever. I feel like thinking about yourself as a whole being in light of who Mm -hmm. Jesus is and what he did on the cross, um, that, that doesn't change based off of what you do or don't do. That doesn't mean that we get the freedom to just run free and do whatever the hell we want, whenever we want. But, um, you know, I think that, that thinking about yourself in that light and in, in mm-hmm. the light of who Jesus is and what he did helps you, again, just break down the shame and view yourself in a way that isn't about your works and isn't about how you have made decisions. Right. And, and I also want to yeah, add the difference between helpful. shame and guilt. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a guest a guest post for another purity culture yes. blogger about purity culture and shame. And that's going to, that's linked on my blog if anyone wants to read that. But, um, but about the connection between purity culture and shame. And I break down the differences between shame and guilt. And so guilt can be a healthy and adaptive emotion. Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am wrong or I am bad. So guilt can be a healthy and adaptive emotion. Shame is not. Mm. Um, And so when we do something that violates our personal values um, or causes harm to another person, then we experience guilt. And that can lead us to apologizing or making amends or repairing the damages or making changes in our behavior to align with our values. So, for example, if um, a couple 
you know, had the value of purity, um, but then they had sex, they might experience healthy guilt because their behavior was not in line with their values. And that can motivate them to make changes and forgive themselves or seek forgiveness from God too. Um, But shame, that feeling of I am wrong or I am bad, leads us to want to hide and withdraw from others and cover up. And so that's not a healthy emotion. And that's that's really what a lot of us experience with purity culture. And it's not justified either. The shame is not justified because it's based on these myths that aren't true. So instead, what we want to do, like we've talked about, is being vulnerable with other people and receiving empathy and compassion and connection and validating ourselves um, for you know, our experiences and our feelings rather than continuing to heap shameful messages onto ourselves. Um, so, yeah, so that's the difference between guilt and shame so that people can identify, like, when are they having guilt? When are they having shame? And then how can they, like, how does that emotion motivate them to, what does it motivate them to do? And how can they um, handle it? Like, I guess, what's the antidote to it? Yeah. Again, like being able to, mm-hmm. you know, identify what's going on. What are you feeling? You know, what what actually is happening? And then. Um, talking about that and deciding, you know, okay, what's next? Like, is this something, if it's a guilt, is this something that, you know, we need to talk about, uh, I need to apologize for, do some, or change the way I'm living um, versus shame. Okay. Like, how can I start to shift the way I'm thinking and understanding that the shame is, is not healthy and is something that needs mm-hmm. to be completely shifted in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, thank you for that distinction. And Again, right. Brene Brown has great, great yeah. information on that too. Well, her entire podcast is all about it, but yes. she's, yeah. she's a she's shame expert. researcher is what she does for a living. So, um, yes, but, um, again, I feel like all that, those three narratives that we just took, um, were help, helpful for a lot of people. I mean, married, single, virgin, non-virgin, we are all affected by this shame from purity culture. And so I'm really thankful that you have kind of broken it down and in your research and in your article and here, you've been able to just kind of break those things mm-hmm. down for us and help us realize that we're not alone, first of all, and that mm-hmm. second of all, there is freedom from this. Um, I think that one thing that could really help us, especially, you know, those of us who are Christians, I, you know, we're starting to get there, but what does it look like to cultivate a meaningful biblical ethic of purity? Um, you talk about this in your article as well. And I just, I've never really thought about needing to recultivate my biblical ethic of purity because, you know, through my experiences, maybe I've subconsciously done that, but, um, I think even being able to say what I believe and being able to say what I think about the, the body and who Jesus is, I think that's, that's something that can be very empowering for a lot of people. So tell us kind of what Mm -hmm. you're, yeah, that's the big question because like you said, um, you've, you had thought about a lot about the myths or the Mm -hmm. purity culture narratives, but taking it a step further on now, what do we do about this? So that's the big question that I feel like I want to answer in my book because there's, there's been a lot of good books written about the problems of purity culture, but not a whole lot on how to, reconstruct a biblical sexual ethic. So that's that's my um, goal and my purpose is helping people deconstruct yeah. the myths and the shame of purity culture and reconstruct a healthy biblical sexual ethic. Because if we are just left hanging after the deconstruction, then we've got nothing to go on. And it really, so it really has to be reconstructed. 
And so we can start doing that by really knowing a deeper why, like having a deeper reason and a deeper why for purity. And that starts with understanding God's purpose for sex and really doing your, your research, your reading, your prayer, and talking to people in your community and your, um, your church and your faith leaders about what is God's purpose and design for sex. We have to root our ethic in that rather than in purity culture promising us certain rewards or avoiding, um, you know, avoiding being damaged goods or things like that. We have to root it in what is God's purpose. And then um, being focusing on being faithful and obedient to God rather than I'm doing this in order to get, you know, get this promise that was made to me. Um, So I think that purity, like I've said, applies Mm -hmm. to you, even if you're married. Um, So whether you're single, you're married, you're young or old or virgin or not, are not a virgin. um, Purity is something that you can still practice and implement in your life. So even me like now being married and um, in my thirties and now I have a daughter, like thinking like how, how is purity still relevant for me and how can I still live that out in my life, in my marriage and my relationship with my husband uh, in the way that I teach my daughter um, sexuality and, and help her develop a healthy sexuality and a healthy biblical sexual ethic one day and the way I teach my students and work with my clients and just the, the work that I'm doing now talking to you and writing these articles about purity culture, I'm just thinking like, how can I help people be faithful to God's teaching in a way that reduces the shame and the myths, but still helps them to um, be faithful and obey God? I love that. And I think, you know, it's also, it gets kind of tricky because especially for you, who's, Mm -hmm. you know, you're teaching students about this and your child, (laughs) Um, like, you know, if maybe someone doesn't, have a biblical understanding or belief in, you know, what it like, or maybe someone has a different idea of what they think God's design for sex is than what you believe. And so it might be very challenging to figure out how to communicate that to other people, but it is helpful, I think, to have that for yourself and, you know, making that decision for yourself. And also, you know, based off of what Mm -hmm. you, like you said, who your community and your faith leaders and, um, reading, but then at the same time, being able to, to kind of understand how to communicate with other people, realizing that they might have a different idea um, or perspective on it and doing that in a way that's, you know, again, compassionate and empathetic to maybe a different journey that they've experienced. And so I think that is a part of my biblical ethic, because I feel like a big part of my, you know, belief in Jesus and and my walk with Christ is about like relating to other people and loving other people. And mm-hmm. how can I do that when someone doesn't agree with what I, I think, you know, but I do think that again, it comes from just conversation and being willing to listen and to consider the other person's experiences and, and um, have compassion for them and mm-hmm. not use legalistic terminology <laughs> and, you know, not use the, the narratives and myths that we've yeah. grown up and with and just start to one, one of my biggest values bit. in life is grace. And so having grace for myself and for others, like you said, having compassion towards yeah. others and knowing that they've walked a different journey than you or they have different beliefs in you than you do, um, having grace towards them and myself. Like there's nothing that I did to earn or deserve um, 
where I'm at in life right now or just the blessings that I have in my life. The fact that I did, you know, meet my husband and now I have a daughter and I'm very blessed um, by that. But I no longer look at it as, well, I earned this um, through my actions or I deserve this and God should have brought it to me. Like, I don't, you know, that that really has changed for me. And so then I'm able to look at others with a lot more compassion and grace too, um, and non-judgment, you know, for the journey that they've walked. Yeah, definitely. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like yep. pretty culture creates this like pridefulness, honestly, you know, of like, oh, I've, I have not had sex, so I'm going to have a great marriage or, you know, I've waited this whole time. And of course I'm getting married. Like I deserve this, but, mm-hmm. um, I love like how your perspective has shifted to, you know, no, like I'm really, I'm really thankful and I'm blessed to have this. And there are people who don't have this and it's not because of anything I've done or, you know, because I've been so faithful, it's because the Lord is good. And, um, you know, just because I have this and somebody else doesn't, doesn't mean he's not good for the other person. He's obviously sovereign over everything. And again, that's another thing that just kind of crumbles with purity culture. When you start to deconstruct it is like the pride that comes mm-hmm, from it. Like, exactly. oh, like I didn't do anything to earn it. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's really good to point out. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for giving us your insight and your wisdom. Yeah. I'm really and truly so thankful that you reached out to me and, um, this has just been awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to add or anything you want to, um, market? I know your book is coming out soon, Thanks. hopefully. And I'm really excited to read that when it does. Yeah, it right now I'm just, I'm working but, on the um, book proposal, so it's like going to be a while, but, um, but people can definitely uh, read my articles okay. on my website, which is drcamden.com. Um, and that's the abbreviation for Dr. Dr. Um, so they can follow along on my blog. Um, you can take my free quiz, which purity culture myth affects you. So it will take you through some questions about my five purity culture myths and see which ones have affected you the most and that um, and you can also sign up for my newsletter just to stay in touch with what I write and um, and my progress on my book but um, but yeah thank you so much for having me I'm glad we could continue the conversation that you had in your last episode and just talk further about shame and um, and the, a sexual ethic and having grace for yourself and others. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you so much again for being here. I really appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed our conversation and we're so glad that you tuned in. Please hop on over to Instagram and follow us at Uncommon Room Pod. That's Uncommon Room P-O-D. We do a lot of polls and things like that. So that's just one way that you can connect with us. Um, we're also always accepting topic requests. So slide into our DMs. Let us know what you want to hear. If you're a first time listener, be sure to give us a shout out and let us know who you are. We would love to know you and are so glad that you're listening. Another way that you can support us is to rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. That really helps us become more present on the app and also just encourages us in the work that we're doing. So just leave a quick one-liner if you have a sec on the Apple Podcasts app. Thanks again for listening and following along with us. We'll talk soon.